MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello. And welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. Today, a big win in New York for the Attorney General Letitia James and her investigation into the Trump Organization. SCOTUS rejects an opportunity to roll back protections for parenting rights for same-sex couples. Mitch McConnell admits Biden won the election. Pete Buttigieg is named for Transportation Secretary. Trump's Twitter account is labeled 100% problematic by Bot Sentinel. Early voting in Georgia for the Senate runoff is up 23% from early voting in the 2020 presidential election. And BuzzFeed gets internal documents showing obstruction of justice and criminal referrals that were ignored by Bill Barr. I'm your host, A.G. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana. Happy Tuesday, Wednesday. How are you? I am good. I missed you all yesterday. Thank you so much for uh, I had a little I had a little film to shoot with a for a friend of mine. So thank you for getting my ass covered. Yeah, that's wonderful. It was great to have Mandy back on. So it was wonderful to hear from you. But I did miss you. I'm glad you're back too. Uh, and we have a really big show today. You can tell by all the headlines, first of all. And second of all, we're going to be talking to the woman who made the documentary film Surge, which is just an incredible incredible film and if you haven't seen it you should watch it now it's on showtime and amazon check that out and then we're going to talk to the empathy guy tony scruggs and you're gonna like after you listen to him you're gonna be like i feel seen and i love everyone he's so incredible i cannot wait because you know what i i need to feel seen and heard that's what i need makes me feel good and he's so good at it he's just he's an, he's a pro and it's just it's wonderful to speak with him and then of course you and i'll go over the good news the listener submitted good news and there's also some good news coming in uh in in the main news uh today and it's really interesting because last night i know Matto did a segment on schadenfreude and i was like all right i've noticed that um the news is getting more and more schadenfreude-y if that's uh, <laughs> it should be if it's not it really should be an english bastardization of a crazy german word i'm sure we'll get a correction <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's it's. I'm sure that's not how you do it in German. Um, but anyway, we do have a ton of news to get to, so let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, the lead story today comes from Adam Klasfeld, who we've had on this show. He's he writes for Law and Crime News. And this is a case following Trump into his post-presidency. New York State Attorney General Letitia James went to court this morning seeking information for her ongoing investigation into the Trump Organization. The fight today was over privilege and privilege documents. The Trump camp was claiming some kind of privilege existing between an engineer of the Seven Springs estate and the Trump Organization. Now, the the, the privilege he's, they're trying to claim here is that these documents were necessary for Trump organization lawyers, and therefore they fall under attorney-client privilege. And the Seven Springs estate, we've talked about this on the show a few times. It came out in that New York Times series about Trump's tax mm -hmm. dodges and mm -hmm. stuff like that. That's the, that's the $21 million write-off he got for a property that he decided not to develop. And you're not supposed to use it for personal use, and he did. And also, um, they're trying to show that he overvalued it. And so therefore, he got a massive, massive tax deduction. New York Attorney General claims that they overvalued this property, Seven Springs, 
and got that massive deduction. So she's she wants these documents about the Seven Springs and the Trump Organization is claiming it's privileged. Um, and that privilege doesn't really exist. Um <laughs> And they also tried to argue the absolute immunity for the president thing, which the Supreme Court has already smacked down. Uh, that doesn't exist either. So the judge took a brief recess after hearing the arguments, then came back and said the court doesn't find the documents in question were necessary for Trump's lawyers. Therefore, the Trump organization has waived privilege and ruled in favor of the New York attorney general. So she's going to get those documents. It's so unlikely for any Trump lawyer to use documents that aren't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's this has to set Trump's hair on fire, uh, which is probably a better thing than he realizes. Uh, I also feel like Trump's hair is really flammable. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so because this these are state these are this is a state investigation. If any criminal referrals come out of this to the Manhattan District Attorney, because this is a civil lawsuit right. and an investigation. Uh, and there's a grand jury impaneled for it. But if any criminal referrals come out, these are state level crimes. A pardon for himself. You know, which may be what's coming and why he got rid of Bill Barr, because Bill Barr didn't want to have any part of that. Yep. Uh, it doesn't cover these crimes. So It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. There There's go. more good news. This is coming out of Indiana. Now, the story was a couple broke a couple days ago, but on Monday, the Supreme Court turned away Indiana's attempt to strip equal parenting rights from married same-sex couples. So this is a big deal. This is another pro-LGBTQ ruling. And I don't want to say ruling, but decision from the court and you'll you'll understand in a minute the court's decision actually ensures that same-sex couples in indiana i can't believe i have to say this shit out loud will remain mm. the lawful parents of their own children i'm not kidding you okay mm. yes so what that does is it ends the state's six-year-long crusade to remove their names from their children's birth certificates so yeah but beyond indiana uh, it that order also suggests that the majority of justices aren't eagle to roll back the marriage equality rights. So this is where that comes in. Box versus Henderson involved eight married lesbian couples, AG, and basically lesbians get shit done. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> they So they conceive through artificial insemination. Now, when a married couple, an opposite sex couple, uses a sperm donor in Indiana, the birth mother's husband is listed as the father on their child's birth certificate. However, when married couples, same-sex couples, used a sperm donor, Indiana's officials refused to identify the birth mother's wife, legally married, as the child's second parent. Instead, they insisted that that spouse had to undergo step-parenting adoption, which is incredibly invasive. It takes a really long time, and it's really, really expensive. And it's also something that uh, heterosexual couples don't have to do. So hmm. this case is six years old. This has been going for six years. In 2014, a lesbian couple sued the state to place their names on their child's birth certificate. So a federal judge actually sided with the plaintiffs in 2016, but Indiana, of course, their Republican AG, uh, decided to appeal the U.S. court um, of the Seventh Circuit. What's weird is that there was like a 32-month delay on this, and then out of nowhere, the Seventh Circuit affirmed the judge's decision. So it noted that the Supreme Court already settled this issue twice. First, in 2015, with Obergefell versus Hodges, the court compelled states to provide same-sex couples with a, a huge amount of benefits that were just linked to marriage. And one of those happened to be mentioning birth certificates for their children. Then this happened again, AG, in 2017 with Pavin versus Smith. So the court reiterated that the states must place same-sex parents on their child's birth certificate if that benefit is provided to opposite-sex parents who lack genetic ties as well. 
So now, in spite of the precedent set by the Supreme Court, of course, this asshole, uh, the Indiana Attorney General uh, Curtis Hill, a Republican, shocking, appealed the Seventh Court's decision. Now, on Monday, though, the court actually declined to take up Indiana's appeal. So what they did is they didn't offer opinions and there was no dissents. They just kicked it back to the lower court, which happens a lot. So we can read this two different ways. We can either read it as one, uh, this might indicate that the conservative bloc has little desire to overturn Obergefell, even though um, Alito and Clarence Thomas are assholes and, and would like to, <laughs> and would like to do that. It is so infuriating to me, that especially Clarence Thomas, who in history at one point could not marry his wife because she's not black. I can't, I can't, that he wants to read to overturn this. Um, it's just infuriating to me, but, uh, the other possibility, uh, is that this just wasn't the right vehicle. So Box versus Henderson, um, basically it's a state's rights issue. So that could be the second reason why the Supreme Court might've rejected the case. You know, as a rule, SCOTUS decides federal law, not state law. And this, this, this little point, I was like, what the fuck? Indiana courts have already hailed that under state law. And I want you to hear this. Same-sex spouses who knowingly and voluntarily consent to artificial insemination are the legal parents of the resulting child. Does anyone hear a problem with this? Like there was a law that had to state what kind of handmaid's tale bullshit was going on in Indiana before this law <laughs> that they were unknowingly artificial insemination. I mean, come on. Mm. And that really caught me in the story. But the attorney general instead, um, he insisted that Indiana only recognize the biological uh, parents as, you know, on both of the names on the birth certificate. But so, that's not true for heterosexual couples. Correct. So that is one of the biggest problems with this whole thing. And so it was nice that the SCOTUS was like, we're not even hearing this case. This is ridiculous. But... There is a possibility that the Supreme Court didn't want to get bogged down in a dispute over state law and turn away the case because it did not clearly, uh, cleanly present a constitutional question. That does not mean mm -hmm. that a billion other people and other places and Republican-led uh, legislatures are going to try and challenge Obergefell. Uh, in the future. But whatever the court's reasoning is, AG, this is this decision actually is a relief for these parents who have been in limbo for six years. In fact, two of these women had been carrying around copies of their child's birth certificate because of the legal, the legal ramifications of it. So basically, you know, their lawyer, she just noted that the promises of full equality made by the court to gain lesbian citizens in Obergefell are a big step closer to being fully kept today, which is nice. So, you know, it's super conservative court, but this is, this, this is the second or third case now that has come out that they're like, we're not, we're not looking at this. Like this is settled law. So just, just stop it already. Stop with your shenanigans. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, uh, there's going to be more cases. And like you said, it could be the possibility that they just didn't like this vehicle. It's kind of like the Roe v. Wade stuff. Right. They're like, I don't like the three-foot hallway vehicle. I don't like the mandatory invasive sonogram. Uh, let's try the eight-week heartbeat thing. Right. Like they, they just want a different case for it, for it to come up for them to hear because it would be, you know, maybe they're waiting for something that's easier for them to rule on. Right. Uh, you know, who who knows what their thoughts are. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's a W, and I'll take it. We'll take it. Absolutely. 
Uh, next up from BuzzFeed News and Jason Leopold, the intrepid Jason Leopold, the FOIA master. Uh, the federal government has released a criminal referral alleging Trump committed crimes related to his phone call with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. The document, among other documents they've obtained, and I, they buried the lead here. I'll get to this. some of the other documents in a minute. But the document obtained by BuzzFeed from the DNI in response to a Freedom of Information Act request is a, le- a letter dated September 4th, 2019. Signed by Michael Atkinson. That's the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, the ICIG. It was sent to Stacy Moy, the Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division. And if you uh, if you uh, listen to the show, you, you know you know Frank Figaluzzi. We have him on. He was the Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division. So that sort of gives you kind of a clue. Moy's involvement with this Ukraine matter had not been previously disclosed. The inspector general, quote, is formally referring allegations received from an individual, that's the whistleblower, regarding, among other things, alleged violations of law related to a telephone call on July 25th, 2019, between President Donald Trump and Vladimir Zelensky. That's from a letter Atkinson wrote. Quote, this referral is a follow-up to my secure phone call on August 27th, 2019, with Chris Ray, FBI Director, Chief of Staff Paul Murphy, during which I provided to Mr. Murphy a summary of the complainant's allegations. Atkinson also sent a copy of this letter to Brian Benchkowski. We've talked about this douchebag at length. He was the head of the Justice <laughs> Department's criminal division. Uh, very conflicted guy. Shouldn't have been put there. Um, and, and Atkinson sent him this letter after learning that, quote, other authorities had also sent the office information about the whistleblower allegation. However, the Justice Department declined to investigate whether Trump had violated a campaign finance law that prohibits foreign contributions to U.S. politicians. The buried lead here is that BuzzFeed also got a four-page letter Atkinson sent to White House counsel Pat Cipollone on August 26, 2019. Um, requesting access, this was before the September 9th letter of criminal referral, uh, on August, in August, he was requesting access to all the documents from the White House related to the Ukraine phone call, as well as, as the, the preservation of records, stating that, quote, intentional failure to meet these obligations may result in charges of obstruction of justice. Irvin McCullough, national security uh, analyst at the Government Accountability Project, told BuzzFeed that document preservation being mentioned in this letter is noteworthy because, quote, it is extraordinarily rare for an inspector general to investigate the White House and issue document preservation holds. Mm-hmm. There is a there is usually a hesitancy to go after the White House because the White House can fire you. And what do you know? That's what happened to Atkinson. Trump fired him in April. The firing of Atkinson, I think, qualifies as obstruction of justice, which carries a five-year statute of limitations, which should be investigated by the Department of Justice under Biden. But, of course, I think Trump will have probably pardoned himself by then. For sure. And BuzzFeed also sued the CIA. This is big news, too, to get the criminal referral they sent to the Department of Justice. So it wasn't just the uh, Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. The CIA sent a criminal referral over. And so BuzzFeed was like, we want your criminal referral. And the CIA's answer was a Glomar response, which is intelligence speak for we can neither confirm nor deny such a document. Oh, Jesus. That's called Glomar. So (laughs) um, my friends and I sort of uh, bat that term around quite a bit. Uh, So like if somebody's like, hey, where were you on Thursday night? Glomar. It, that that's like the it's like the kind intelligence officer's way of saying don't ask me that i'm not going to confirm or deny <laughs> at all that i was at helga's house of pain on thursday <laughs> <laughs> i want to answer that all the time <laughs> i shall neither confirm or deny 
Glomar. Oh, we've got more good news, though, AG. I love that we're doing this during the this part and not just saving it to the end. <laughs> and somehow I got all the gay stories today, but that's cool. Uh, <laughs> this one comes... <laughs> Comes as President-elect Joe Biden will nominate Pete Jude Buttigieg, Mr. Buttigieg, to be his Secretary of Transportation. That's elevating the one-time rival to a key role in the incoming administration's push to rebuild American infrastructure and the economy. This is according to three people familiar with the decision. The Buttigieg is... Finally, maybe we'll get Infrastructure Week. I know, Infrastructure Week <laughs> has been amazing for the last four years, hasn't it? Somebody oh. tweeted the best joke. They're like, because you know the whole thing about uh, Buttigieg is a Rhodes Scholar, right? Right. And they're like, does this make him a Rhodes Scholar? R-O-A-D-S? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> dad joke extraordinary there's nothing like a good gay dad joke though i mean (laughs) (laughs) oh goodness so Buttigieg, who's 38 he built his presidential bid on calls to pass the torch to a new generation of leaders which is something biden himself has called he's absolutely essential so he was the first openly gay major party candidate to win delegates in a bid for the White House. And if confirmed, he would be the first openly LGBTQ cabinet secretary um, to be put in this administration and actually ever, which is which is a beautiful thing. Um, Making history all over the place. Yes, all over the place. The massive department with a budget. This is huge of almost $90 billion in funds, funds highways and transit systems, runs the air traffic control system, guarantees the safety of aircraft and airlines and regulates a trucking industry that employs millions of people. Uh, If confirmed, one of the most pressing tasks for Buttigieg will be helping to rebuild the nation's transportation networks, which has been decimated, decimated by the coronavirus pandemic. Everything that they inherit in this next administration, it's somehow going to be tied to the decimation from this pandemic. It really is. As passengers have stayed home and the revenue has plummeted, airlines have laid off tens of thousands of employees in major transit agencies like the Washington Metropolitan. Metropolitan Area Transit Authority are planning deep cuts in service for the coming year. This is huge, especially because this is going to highly affect underrepresented areas and lower socioeconomic areas. A lot of people count on this transit to get where they need to go. State transportation agencies responsible for roads and bridges have projected shortfalls in the billions. Now, the Biden campaign has released ambitious plans to revamp the country's transportation infrastructure, such as repairing old bridges and highways, while reducing impact of transportation on the environment by promoting electric cars, rail, transit, rideship. All of it is so very important. And, you know, I think that Joe's a great guy to, you know, implement a lot of this. He's he's the trains guy. He takes trains everywhere. He has for a very, very long time. <laughs> so you know what? At least he's going to walk the walk and talk the talk. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it's very, very good news. Um, now, some other quick headlines. Mitch McConnell admitted today that Biden won the election. Um, he gets no love from me. Or for me. the obvious. Nope. So You should have done that on November 4th fourth or whenever the hell that we knew that this was going to happen sixth seventh seventh the seventh yep. november seventh a day that we'll live in for me god it seems like a year ago <laughs> yeah and uh, like I, fuck him anyway 
Also, Trump's Twitter account has been rated 100% problematic by Bot Sentinel. I've never seen an account rated at 100% problematic, but his has been. I, 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 so I think Seth Abramson was like, I think this is the first time I've seen this. So that's really interesting. And, and we talked about this yesterday. He's no, he's no longer under the world leader's protection. Come January 20th, he could be banned from Twitter. Good. Um, and some great news about Georgia. Stacey Abrams tweeted, more than 168,000 Georgians voted early in person yesterday for the January 5th runoff election. And that is a 23% increase from the first day of early voting just this past October. And that is sourced from georgiavotes.com. That's incredible. A 23% increase over the presidential election. Beautiful thing. I know. That is a beautiful thing. And that's just early voting. I mean, that's in person. I mean, the amount of people that mm-hmm. ask for mail-in ballots, it's massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's she, I think her, she herself single-handedly since the election in, in November has added another 85,000 voters to the Georgia rolls. She's incredible. They all are. And when you consider that Biden only won by a quarter of that, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Speaking of amazing women, we'll be right back with the amazing woman that created the documentary Surge. Her name is Wendy Sachs. And later I'll be speaking with the empathy guy and you will feel instantly happy listening to him. I promise. His name is Tony Scruggs. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Fight Camp. I love Fight Camp. These days I'm stuck at home. My gyms are closed. I'm trying to stay in shape. I get bored with the same workouts, so I'm always looking for new routines to keep me engaged and motivated. And if you're like me, you're looking for a workout that's always fun and challenging and never boring. You need to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp is an at-home boxing and bodyweight workout taught by real fighters, and it's made for all levels from first-time boxers to seasoned fighters. It's even great for kids. It is so much fun. The boxing workout is always ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape, and honestly, it's one of the most fun ways to get a full-body workout and combine cardio and strength training while developing hand-eye coordination. Fight Camp provides all the gear you need, including gloves, wraps, the best freestanding punching bag on the market, and their unique punch tracking sensors that show your real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. The workouts are structured like traditional boxing rounds with interval training for three minutes of high intensity boxing and bodyweight training and then one minute of rest. So you get that high interval intensity like training thing that just it burns so much fat. And you can access over 400 different workouts for all fitness levels and skills. They have four new ones each week, too. And you can connect with Fight Camp on Facebook. They have 4,000 members and you can challenge and climb the leaderboards and motivate each other. Uh, so it's really fun, really competitive, and just a, so much variety. So you can watch yourself reach new milestones. And Fight Camp keeps you engaged, too, focused and in the zone. That endless variety I was talking about, and they have these uplifting beats and the motivating trainers and the power effect, the powerful technology they have, they all combine to create this really satisfying workout. Fight Camp offers flexible financing as low as 0% APR. And right now, for a limited time offer, you can try Fight Camp for 30 days with a money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com beans. That's right. You can try it for 30 days. Try Fight Camp for 30 days. And if you don't love it, they will refund your money. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. So go to try Fight Camp for 30 days. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash beans. Again, that's joinfightcamp.com slash beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today, I have the honor of speaking with former Capitol Hill press secretary and the writer and producer of the documentary film Surge. And Surge is about the record number of first-time female candidates who ran, won, and upended politics in the historic barrier-breaking 2018 midterm election. So please welcome Wendy Sachs to the show. Wendy, how are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan, and I love your show. Oh, I love your show, too. This movie is so incredible. 
uh, and uplifting, and I want to get into it because it follows uh, three candidates in Texas, Indiana, and Illinois in the 2018 election who each running in uphill battles to flip. They were in deep red districts, and they flipped them blue, including Lauren Underwood, the youngest black woman to ever be elected to Congress, who I absolutely love. Wendy, what prompted you to document like did you feel the historic nature of this of this election and and said i have to get on this yeah absolutely you know it was after the devastating results of the 2016 presidential election and then a few weeks later um after the inauguration the women's march right and after that there were all of these stories bubbling up in the news about women raising their hand saying they are running for office, women who had never imagined that they were going to run for office before. And they felt compelled. They felt like they needed to do something more than march and write postcards and call their members of Congress or get on Facebook and just, you know, spew on Facebook. They needed to run for office. And it felt like something really transformative was underway. And I wanted to document it. Um, So I got together with uh, my directing partner, Hannah Rosenzweig, and we decided that we are going to capture this this moment and throughout the entire film, the question we ask is, is this a moment or is this a movement? Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting how there's so many women that I've spoken to, women who are compelled to run for office or women who are compelled to write books or women about historic events or women who are compelled to make documentary films. It all kind of springs from the same understanding of you know, kind of being able to back up and look at it as as a movement and not a moment, and to be able to recognize that and document it. It's why I started a podcast about the Mueller investigation. I was like, exactly. I bet this is going to be important, and so you know, you just sort how of... right you were, right? You want to sort of be in the middle of history, right? I mean, there there was something really, really sort of inspiring and emotional and visceral happening, and you just recognize that. This is history in the making, right? And you want to be a part of that. It just made sense to follow these stories. And, and what are some of the real standout kind of moments where you were in it and making it and it was reaffirming that this was a movement, that this was historic? What are, Can you like pick out a few moments of where you, you know you get that feeling where you're like, this is it, it's real, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. It's such a great question. You know, because we followed candidates not on the coast, which was really intentional, we were really looking to follow women who are a diverse group of women um, who represented, you know, across America in their 30s and 40s and 50s, Black, Latina, um, all, all, you know, really representing what was happening at this time. We spent a lot of time in Texas. You know, I think we did, and I personally did more shoots in Texas than anywhere else for this film. And Texas, we think of as this like really Republican, deep red, alpha male state. And here we were following Janelyn Sanchez, who, you know, she said she was like an unlikely candidate. Her district was deemed by the DCCC totally unwinnable. She got no love from the party. She was getting no support. She ran a really, really scrappy campaign and moved the needle so far. And when I was with her on primary day, and then she had a runoff election, and then on the general election day, to see what was happening, you know, 
on the ground um, to see how motivated voters were and how motivated her volunteers were and how motivated the Democratic Party was showing up in Texas. You know, these Texans who said, you know, no one's knocked on my door in 30 years from the Democratic Party and here they were. And I think it was those moments that just really captured the energy that was happening and this feeling of empowerment, like we can actually change things here. And I think then looking at now at 2020, that there's so much disappointment with what happened in Texas because there was so much energy and momentum behind them. There was so much wind behind, you know, what was happening down there. But it was a really, really powerful. Those were powerful moments to feel like we're a part of something big happening here. Yeah. And and you brought up, you know, you stayed away from the coasts. Right. And I think that that's so important here because it's these kinds of races in Texas and red counties and, and, and uh, red districts that that have, I feel like, the biggest impact. Um, because like here in California, if you followed somebody running for something in California, it's either like, well, it's either the super progressive person or the extra super progressive person who's going <laughs> to win. And left and left of left. Right. <laughs> right. And so there's not, you know, so I think when you're looking at, at middle America like that, and you know, you're, you're focusing kind of on these races, was that sort of part of the decision to, to stay away from the coasts? Yeah. You know, we really wanted to see what was really sort of happening on the ground in suburban districts and in districts that were looking to flip. Like that was really key to our film. There were some other films that were also coming out that were documenting women running for the first time. Um, there was a film that followed AOC and, but she was running in a really blue district and that film only went through the primary. And part of also making the film was we wanted to sell the film. So we needed to differentiate ourselves from other films that were happening out there. So we wanted to choose candidates who we thought, you know, were viable and that could make it through their primary. We were hoping, you know, these someone would make it through the general and actually win. You know, you're definitely like betting on a horse here. Um, but yeah, I think to us, it was really important to follow women who were running in districts that were challenging, right? But they weren't extreme candidates. You know, they, we're not talking about super, super progressives. Lauren Underwood would never be able to win her seat if she ran as a labor candidate in a Republican district in a rural, you know, the, the district in Illinois has a lot of rural areas and suburban areas. I mean, there was just no chance. And of course, Liz Watson was running in Indiana, also in a really, really deep red district. That state, I think her district actually went to, went, um, to Trump by 16 points. So, you know, these are candidates who have to be more moderate. They have to speak to um, a more moderate Democratic and also pull in Republican voters and independent voters. So that to us was also what was very interesting. They weren't just demagogues. They weren't just um, super progressives looking to blow up the system and take down the House. You know, they were really looking to, to win and create real change. Yeah, that's so interesting because and and by no means do I mean to take away from candidates who ran progressive and already blue districts and and flipped a blue district to a darker blue, I guess, or like, a, you know, a more a more pro progressive blue. I do not mean to take away from those candidates at all. That's excellent. And that is what the constituents in those districts want and look for. Um, but when I was doing um, in 20 for the 2020 election, a flip it blue segment where I was having um, candidates, Democratic candidates in, like you said, in, in districts where no Democrat ever ran before, the DCCC gives you no love. Uh, it Trump wins it by 40 points in, in 2016. 
uh, that, you know, they really had to come out and say, I'm not for Medicare for all. I'm for uh, a, a public option or making health care more accessible and affordable by shoring up the Affordable Care Act. Or, you know, they have, but, you know, they're really into uh, understanding their rural voters and representing the people in their districts. And it's and so when you get the, that kind of pushback from from progressives who are like, but you need Medicare for all, but you're not going to win in those districts if you if you if you go for that because that's not what those voters want. And it and and the best example I can think of is Bernie Sanders, his his gun history, right? His history on you know with uh, with his gun legislation because in Vermont they want their guns, so he can't run on a ticket to take you know, for gun control and stuff like that. I mean, he could later, but, you you know, for president, but not when you're running for Vermont. So you have to represent, I'm pro-Medicare for all, I am, but you have to represent the constituents in your district, and that's what these women were doing. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because Liz Watson, um, the woman we followed who was running for Congress in Indiana, was a labor candidate. She was a Bernie candidate. Bernie actually came out and you see it in the film. He did this massive rally for her right before election day. There were thousands of people out there. It was incredible. And there's this great line in the film where her young daughter says Medicare for all. So she's a, a proud labor candidate in this district, you know, that hadn't seen a Democrat win in, in many, many years. And she was really going all in. Um, she, you know, hindsight's 2020. She realizes that district is not going to vote for a labor candidate in 2018. They would not in 2020. Maybe eventually they will. But the way that district is gerrymandered, she just has too, too Republican, too conservative of a district. Um, so she, she actually lost in a bigger margin than um, Jana Lynn Sanchez in Texas who probably politically was a little bit more aligned with her constituents. But yeah, you know, it, it's true. I mean, I think the Democratic Party, we're even seeing it right now with everything that's happening as Biden's trying to, you know, pick his cabinet and, and senior ranking officials that already there's this sort of like infighting happening in the party. Uh, it's really, it's challenging, man, it's challenging. <laughs> All we want are the Democrats to win. We want these down ballot Democrats to win. And you know we have so many factions in the party uh, trying to take each other down. It's really tough. It's really, really, it's, it's tough to watch. Well, it's because the electorate has moved to the left in this country. And so we, when you when you encompass the majority of the people and what they want, because we're a, Democrats are a big tent party, there's going to be more factions within that than say the Trump party, right? Which is just one thing, right? <laughs> so, and there's and so many... terrified, right? <laughs> they're no longer Republicans. They're, you know... They're Trump re Trump Republicans. Right. Trump-licans. So, yeah, and so it's... and I, But I love the fact that in this film that there are, uh, were people running who stuck to their values, too. Because you, on one hand, you can say, you got to come to the center. But on the other hand, you have candidates who are like, that's not where I'm at. That's not what I believe. And I'm going to run on what I believe, uh, win or lose. And I love that. What's really extraordinary is to watch Lauren Underwood, who wins in an 86% white district. She's young. I mean, she's a millennial African-American nurse running in a you know very red district. Um, and there, there's this awesome scene that we shot in Woodstock, Illinois. And in the room, 
it's like the average age I think is like 80 years old and it's all white people. And you see Lauren and she, she knows everyone in the room. She's shaking everyone's hand and she's talking about healthcare. I mean, her issue is healthcare. That's what she ran on. Um, the Affordable Care Act and her own personal heart condition. That's her story. And that's really what prompted her to run. Uh, and you see her connecting with these old white people and these old white men who just love her. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful scene. It's, it's something that everyone really, you know, takes away with them because you see her connection, her connection to her constituents. Mm -hmm. Like it's totally legit. This is her issue. This is an issue they care about. She doesn't need to be, you know, middle-aged white male to represent them. She's young, black, and, you know, a nurse, and they love her. And she's, you know, she's doing an amazing job in that district. Yeah, her her genuineness um, is, it just shines through. And it's, it's, it's truly incredible. I love that scene. Um, I want everyone who's within the sound of my voice to watch this. Can you tell people where they can see it? Yes, please watch it. Uh, we are streaming on Showtime. If you don't have Showtime, you can also watch the film on Amazon. Uh, you can rent it. We're also going to be up on iTunes in about a month. But right now, yeah, go to Amazon, um, Amazon Prime, rent the film. And uh, it's it's great. It's inspiring. It's uplifting. It's the perfect thing to watch for the holidays and before the inauguration. <laughs> oh, what a good idea. Like right before the inauguration and then after, and then we can all watch the, the Trump Plaza in Atlantic City uh, <laughs> be, be, de be destroyed on January 29th. That's a good, that's a one, two, three for me. That's a good hat trick. I also wanted to bring up, you have a couple books here, How She Really Does It, Secrets of Successful Stay-at-Work Moms. I love stay at work, by the way, stay-at-work moms. And Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. And I just, for before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about the through line between these books and this movie that you made, because there are a lot of, of, of threads that travel through this. You know, there's this whole saying, you write about what you know. <laughs> so I, I wrote my first book, How She Really Does It, when I was really struggling with work-life balance. I had a new baby. I wanted to go back to work. I had worked in television news for a long time. And I really struggled with how to do it all. So I turned to famous women who seemed to be balancing all of this. And I interviewed them. And that sort of inspired the, my first getting into this whole world of talking about work-life with women and how to balance it all. And then about 10 years later, 15 years later, I guess, let's see, I, I've lost track of the math. A while, a while down the road, um, many, many, many more career turns and pivots after being fired for the third time, <laughs> I decided to write Fearless and Free um, because I realized that my jobs, I've been in jobs of like marketing and journalism and writing and reporting, all of those jobs have been blown up by digital. And they were firing people like me because I became too expensive and they were hiring people half, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get a job. Um, and I sort of turned to Silicon Valley and this whole idea of like, look at these boys in the hoodies. Like they're, you know, they raise millions of dollars in venture cap capital cash. Their company blows up and they don't feel like a big fat failure. That's a new song, by the way. And the boys in the hoodies are always hot. Yeah. <laughs> the boys in the hoodies. Yeah. So I like, was like, well, what's happening out there? What's this idea about like failure? And they, they, they embrace failure. They're like totally having failure conferences and conventions. And it's like a notch <laughs> in the belt for these guys. And 
And I thought, why can't women do that? Why can't we just embrace this idea of failure and taking risks and what that looks like and how we need to, it's not blaming ourselves that I'm a big fat failure. You know, maybe the company needed to downsize or for whatever reason, you're not getting the job and to sort of, you know, to, to, to look internally. So that's really what created, you know, this idea for fearless and free. And it was really because I couldn't get a job that I started researching this book and writing about the book. But then I was writing this book and finishing it up right before the 2016 election. I even talk about Hillary Clinton in my book and talk about how she's mansplained and how she's criticized for the tone of her voice. And, and she's not smiley enough and she's not authentic enough. And she's not, you know, um, she's wearing the wrong pantsuit, whatever it is. She was constantly getting dinged for all of these really like misogynistic and sexist things that, you know, men weren't held to the same standard. And I write this book right on the cusp of the 2016 election. Um, and a few months later, I'm out there during the Women's March. And a few months after that, I'm casting for candidates for this film because really the greatest pivot and the biggest risk and to really show a fearless, badass woman is someone who's deciding to run for office. You know, that to me is like really the through line to it all. It's like, that is like the ultimate pivot um, and the ultimate, uh, audacious, badass risk that you take, that you're throwing, you're all in and you're going to run for office. I love it. And now we have tens of thousands of women adding their doctor honorifics to their names on Twitter. Jill Biden, Dr. Biden. Yes, Dr. Biden. It's absolutely wonderful. I did it too. And it's- yeah, congratulations. I saw that you got that doctorate. Thank you. Do you go by doctor? No, and I haven't. It's been years because of the backlash and, you know, but because of what was written in that Wall Street Journal editorial and then, you know, what, how Jill Biden, Dr. Biden responded to it. I was like, you know what? F you. I'm a doctor and you can call me that. Thank you. Mr. Whoever you are, you know, <laughs> my, only, only certain people, I think, are required to call me that. Um well, everybody, please watch Surge. It's on Showtime and Amazon right now. Thank you so much, filmmaker, author, Wendy Sachs. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. You too. Thank you so much for having me on. And good luck with, with this amazing podcast. And uh, onward into 2021. Yes. Best of luck to you as well. We, um, we should love that we suck and no fear of failure. Let's do it. Uh, we right. don't. We don't suck. But you know what I mean. Uh, I just wanted to quote the movie. I just wanted to quote Ben Stiller playing the bongos there for a second. Uh, thank you again. Everybody, we'll be right back with Tony Scruggs, the empathy guy. Stick around. Hey, everybody. It's AG. Uh, showers are my favorite thing these days. I get my best ideas in the shower. It's my relaxing alone time. Sometimes I get all lathered up, start singing in the shower. I absolutely love it. I'm excited to tell you about my new favorite shower system. It's called Nebbia. It's backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, it's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that, get this, it saves water. That is so important to me. And it's anything but ordinary, um, especially in California. Anywhere, though, we really need to conserve water. The Nebbia enhances your shower experience, takes you to a different level. It's like a steam room combined with an invigorating shower. After a Nebbia shower, I feel very relaxed and recharged. It's like I took a spa day. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage to standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. Nebbia's atomized droplets 
bullets, rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. It can be easily installed in 15 minutes or less with no need for contractors or plumbers. Uh, so if you can change a light bulb, you can install the Nebbia by Moen. Uh, Nebbia balances functionality with clean aesthetics to achieve a timeless design. And they've got four incredible finishes, white and chrome, spot-resistant nickel, which is what I have, matte black and black and chrome. And they also offer accessories like shower shelves and shower curtains, which pair perfectly with the shower-stunning design. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $1.99. And for Daily Beans listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use code BEANS at Nebbia.com will get 15% off site-wide. Nebbia rarely does a deal like this, so this is a great deal to jump on. So go to Nebbia.com slash beans. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash beans to check out what they have to offer. Again, the first 100 people to use the code beans when checking out will get 15% off. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash beans and use the code beans to save 15%. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today is Montessori Methodist raised in Palo Alto, California, also known as the empathy guy, my friend, Tony Scruggs. Tony, how are you? Oh, my goodness. You know what? Since I'm the empathy guy, why don't I, for your listeners, ask you first, Allison Gill, how are you feeling today? Mm. Well, uh, let's see. I'm excited about the future. Uh, I'm hopeful with these first vaccines being um, being delivered and given on television. And um, I'm also very interested to see how the rest of the reticent Republicans act now that Mitch McConnell has acknowledged that Joe Biden is the president-elect and Kamala D. Harris is the vice president-elect. I am so glad I asked you that question. And to answer on my side, because I believe that we are three-part beings, spirit, mind, and body, I'm going to say spiritually, I feel grateful. Emotionally, I waffle between like cheerful and distressed considering things that are going on, specifically some of the things you just mentioned. Today, I am absolutely cheerful. And then physically, because I just did yoga, worked out and meditated, I am absolutely regulated to use a trauma-informed term. So I am absolutely ready to go. I feel wonderful. Thank you for asking. I I love that you bring up the three-part being, right? Spirit, mind, and body. Because as a practitioner of yoga now for multiple years, it's about reuniting those three things. Uh, and and be and that's be, as a a, a a survivor of trauma myself. Trauma can really separate those three kids into different rooms and build huge walls between them. So I think that that sort of goes towards and is a great segue into the conversation we're about to have, which actually piggybacks on the conversation I had earlier this week with John Vanderpool, who made his film, his documentary film about uh, trying to reach out. Um, and also later in this week, we're going to have David Weissman, who who was reached out to by Sarah Silverman. And then we also had a discussion when I was talking to Vanderpool about respecting people's need to not do that uh, when they feel like they shouldn't have to or can't, et cetera. And so I want to be very cognizant of all of those different kinds of beings in spirit, mind, and body. So let's let's kick that off. Tell me a little bit about about what your movement is and what you are out there trying to or helping helping to, people to understand. Wow. Thank you for the question and thank you for the share right before the question. I want to do something for your listeners, if you don't mind first. I want to acknowledge something about your military service. When I was reading about like nuclear physics and healthcare and your military service, it reminded me that once, and I think this applies to the question you just asked, 
we were doing an empathy tent session. And for those of you who don't know, the empathy tent is this sacred space. And, and literally, it's a canopy that says empathy tent across from it. So we were doing this empathy tent session at Politicon a few years ago. And an empathy tent session can be either somebody comes in and gets understanding for what's going on for them, or they sit down with a facilitator like me, who with another person helps them understand what's going on for the other person. A lot of times it's someone who doesn't, who they don't agree with. So we were doing this empathy tent session at Politicon a few years ago, and there was a young man in the military. We went through the session 20 minutes and on the other side of the session, I pulled him aside and I said, you know, we've connected. And as someone who was born on March Air Force Base, by the way, in the month of March, I said, can I ask you a question about your service? And he said, sure. I said, what is the most empathic way to acknowledge your service without saying the words, thank you for your service? <laughs> Allison, he started to choke up and I'm actually gonna choke up just thinking about this. He said, I've had this question in my mind for the longest time, but I didn't wanna put it on someone. I wanted somebody to ask me and you're the first person to ask me. He said, if someone walked up to me and said, Oh, I'm getting goosebumps and said, thank you for believing that my life was worth fighting for. He said that would be the highest reception of honor. So Allison Gill, the soprano who sang alto in Handel's Messiah, the ENTJ Allison Gill, thank you for believing that my life is worth, was worth fighting for. I appreciate it. Well, that's incredible. I, I remember tweeting out tweeting out on Veterans Day this year that you know i said this this one goes out to all of the the veterans and service members who aren't comfortable being thanked for their service uh, i see you uh and appreciate you and i got an overwhelming response to that um and i worked on um a, a thing with npr it was a little series about how to interact with veterans um, as they come back to transition into civilian life, called it was called Permission to Speak Freely, which is a wonderful uh, title for that. And it was with some incredible people that I worked with. But that was a central theme, right, was, was trying to uh, understand so you could have empathy uh, from where somebody else is coming from. And that's like one of the greatest gifts I think that you could give someone isn't like, I'm going to tell you what you are to me. It's tell me how to tell thank you. Or, you know, I, I think that that's just an incredible way to approach anything. And I think that that's probably the beginning of talking to some, some folks, for example, David Weissman, you and I both know David. Uh, and, and cause everyone asks him, what was the thing that clicked it over for you? And it, he said, somebody was kind to me. Wow. And, and that leads back to the question you originally asked about what is the empathy guy's purpose on this planet, what is empathy? What is nonviolent communication like Jan John Vanderpool talked about, which I actually call nonviolence for communication. And I'll jump back to that in a second. But what I wanted to share with those listening really quick is, as uh, AG mentioned, I am a Montessori Methodist raised in Palo Alto, California. And really quick, what that means is I was raised in old money and I've seen what the, the humanists and people with old money, new money, no money. So I'm not impressed by that. And yet I respect human beings. So that filter has gone from my world. So that's why I say the Palo Alto piece. The Montessori piece is 
I was in private school from the time I was a little kid where the mission of Montessori is empathy and autonomy, doing things because you choose to, not because you believe you're being forced. So as you're listening to me, realize I was put into this space of empathy and autonomy before I could speak. And then the Methodist piece is I was raised in a conservative, I was baptized a Methodist in a conservative space, which I didn't realize is conservative, which may be poignant for this conversation because we didn't speak, we didn't move during a service. So the first time I went to another type of church, another denomination, and people got up or people like spoke during the service, I literally almost passed out because I was just in shock. I was jarred by it, but it opened my mind to, ah, my experience is not the experience. So the whole empathy, autonomy, the church, the Montessori, the Methodist, all of that Palo Alto experience goes into what I'm about to say about empathy. And I love Brother Wiseman. I love Brother uh, Vanderpoel. And what I want to say about empathy to start with for folks, and we do run a place called the Empathy Institute. It's also the empathyguy.com. The Empathy Institute is the global platform for empathy. And just for your listeners to know, empathy is three-dimensional. People think of empathy as either shoe swapping or pain suffering. You know, put yourself in the shoes of another person. That sounds wonderful philosophically. The thing is when someone goes, hey, Tony, how do you put yourself in the shoes of another? Like there's not a how built into the what in that definition. So we looked for a definition of empathy that had a how built into it. So generally speaking, empathy is the respectful understanding of another person's experience. So just generically speaking, the respectful understanding of another person's experience. So until you until you learn that, you can't have it, right? I mean, until you learn about their experience and understand how you can empathize with them, it, it would be difficult to. You know what? Hold that question on the other side of what I'm about to say, and then you tell me the answer to that question, because I do believe empathy is a skill that we can all acquire and learn. So on one side of what you just said, absolutely, until you learn the skill and you believe it's something you either have or you don't have, you might not be able to uh, engage in being an empathic human being. So if you think of empathy as being three-dimensional, empathy is a language that we can speak. So you're guessing what people are feeling and you're guessing what people are needing, kind of what you were just sharing. Empathy is also an action that we can take. So I had a friend who uh, he needed a ride to the airport. I found out that his common human universal need for courtesy was met by being driven to the airport. So the action I took to meet his need for courtesy, which we all have as human beings, was to drive him to the airport. That also kind of makes clarity around just because his need for courtesy was met by driving him to the airport doesn't mean Allison's need for courtesy is met by that or Tony's need for courtesy is met by that. So it's the strategies that we come into conflict with. It's the common human universal needs that we all need to connect around. So empathy is a language, guessing what people are feeling, guessing what they're needing. It's an action. We find out what meets somebody's need and we do what we want to do in our default setting as human beings contribute to the well-being of another person. I believe at my core, Allison, that is what we're here on this planet to do. We just haven't figured out a way to do it that's easy that we can recognize. And then the last piece, and whenever you want to jump in, jump in. I love conversations that are circular. And the last piece, the third dimension of empathy, it is, it's a need. And that's kind of the irony. It's something we all can speak. 
It's something we can take action towards, but it's something we all need. We need to be seen, heard, and understood. So I can speak empathically to another person, especially someone who doesn't agree with my point of view. I can take action empathically when I find out things that will meet their needs, but then I can ask them to offer me understanding and listening. So I can speak empathically, I can act empathically, and I can need empathy for me. Any quick reflections or questions around that? Yeah, and that's the piece that I think I'm, I, I was uh, speaking to is that third, that third part. If 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 it's something that we can't guess, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, there are universal nice things that you do for people. Uh, if there's something that we can't guess, um, we can act by asking how we can uh, meet someone's needs, and 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 I think that that's a, a hugely important point because that kind of gets to that that age-old chestnut of an argument people have, you know, well, what's wrong? Well, if you don't know, I'm not telling you. And then, you know, or if if I ask uh, my partner to clean the kitchen and they don't do it to my standards, but I don't explain that to them and they don't ask, then there's just a weird passive sort of, and, you know, and this that's a simple example of a, of a chore, but there are deep and important actions that people take in their lives where those conflicts can can happen because we don't understand, we don't think to ask, and or we don't think to to tell the other person, "Hey, this is what I need from you to 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 do this." And so that that brings me around to the nonviolence for communication as opposed to the nonviolent communication, and that's where we're going to end. Explain to me a little bit about that distinction. So. As I was listening to John speak, he was talking about nonviolent communication. I realized when he was talking about my mentor, Marshall Rosenberg was the architect of nonviolent communication or NVC. He, uh, my dad was the singer at his wedding. So it was a family connection that we had. This person developed this, this philosophy 40 years ago. So nonviolent communication created by my mentor, Marshall Rosenberg, was a title that my friends would hear, half, mostly my guy friends. My friends would hear as an indictment of their character, somehow implying that they were being violent. When I shifted it slightly to nonviolence for communication, all of a sudden that resistance was gone. And Marshall had once told me the brand became so big, he wasn't able to shift the title, but he was passing me the baton if I wanted to slightly adjust it. And even though he's been gone for years, this is the adjustment I made in the last year. And a lot of people are able to hear the title nonviolence for communication. And what it is, it's a way of speaking that takes judgment out of conversation. And I'm going to come back to the example you just gave with the partner. The way that we take judgment out of, of conversation is we step away from the right-wrong square. So as soon as you start learning NVC or nonviolence for communication, right-wrong, good-bad, normal-abnormal start to just disappear from your vocabulary. Here's a big four that disappear from the vocabulary as well. Should, have to, must, and can't which turn out to be words that people hear as criticism. And when human beings hear a criticism, they usually either submit like, oh, okay, boo, or they rebel. Oh yeah, F you. So we use words that don't help people think of it as a criticism, but hear it as a connection. So it's a way of speaking that takes judgment out of conversation by stepping away from the right wrong square and stepping into an empathic circle. What does that look like stepping into an empathic circle? Say with your partner, if you're wanting to convey a message, we start by speaking in observations instead of judgments, and then we connect our feelings to our needs 
instead of our judgments to our thoughts, for example. Or our feelings to their actions, right? Yeah, and I'll use one of my examples to not get on yours. So I had a friend who said to their partner, You're, you never listen to me. You're so inconsiderate, disrespectful. Empathically, what I heard was, I want to be seen and heard, and I have a value, a big value for consideration and respect. That's not how their partner used to hear it. Their partner heard it as a criticism. So they were like, oh yeah. And so when I helped them listen and think empathically and then translate that skill verbally, they were able to say, oh, so respect and consideration are really important to you. And you really want to be seen and heard. And it's been frustrating. That's how you felt when I haven't been able to offer you this gift. And you would like me to say the next time we're having a conversation, instead of looking down at my phone, you would like me to give you eye contact for at least 20 seconds while you're speaking. The other person being heard, it like hits them in their heart and they're like, oh my God, you heard what I was feeling. You know what I'm needing. And then the request, the end request is as big important. What are we feeling? What are we needing? And we give somebody something to do with the request at the end. So those are the quick basic. Was that, was there clarity around what that is and how it could apply to being in an empathy tent and connecting with another person. And just really quick on that part, when we do have someone with opposing views in the empathy tent, I would facilitate, I would hear one person speak, the other person could only be listening, and then I would translate, help them translate what the person was feeling, what they were needing, and then we would do it the other way around. By the time we went to like the third circle, they did it without me. And they were able to say, wow, it sounds like community and love and inclusion are why you like the Confederate flag. Oh yeah, and it sounds like uh, uh, contributing to other people's well-being and protecting people is why you like Medicare for all. Is that what I'm hearing? Within 30 minutes, they are only hearing needs and the connection is set. We fight over strategies, we connect over needs. Wow, well, I have to tell you, I I absolutely love talking to you and I love hearing you talk. I feel I feel loved and seen and happy uh, today after this conversation. And I hope I get to speak with you further. Uh, I do have to run now. We have to get to the good news. But I, I want everyone to know where they can find you and listen to you and 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 kind of connect with you. Where, where can where can folks find you? So I was thinking about this coming in. You can either go to the empathy go to the bottom and you'll see the big blue bar to connect. Or, you know what, since y'all are listening to AG right now, why don't anybody who's listening who wants a copy of my book, Excellence Off the Field, that was cover quoted by Marianne Williamson, testimonialized by Francis Fisher, and forwarded by Real Housewives of New Jersey, Jacqueline Larita, just text 44Empathy7, just text It's Tricky, It's Tricky with an E versus a Y, It's Tricky to 44Empathy7, and the first couple of people, I will send a book and you will get a link. Anybody who sends It's Tricky to 44 Empathy 7 will get a link and all the information they need. And I think it's kind of fun because people tell me, even though it's a vanity number, when they type the word empathy into the phone, they feel a little bit of being seen, heard, and understood. So just type uh, It's Tricky and text It's Tricky to 44 Empathy 7 or go to the empathyguide.com and I will send the first couple of copy of my book, Excellence Off the Field, the ultimate guide to mindful empathy. That's so wonderful. And how do you spell tricky again, just to make sure everyone's got it? Thank you. It stands for transforming racism into connection and kindness empathically. And it is tricky with an E, T-R-I-C-K-E. It's tricky, but we can do this to Mandy. We can do hard things. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much, Tony Scruggs. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you, A.G. Have a grateful day. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. 
Hey everybody, it's AG. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Echelon, an amazing company providing the best in connected fitness at an affordable price, finally. So if you're like me, you're looking for exciting, engaging home workouts that are fun, you have to check out Echelon. Echelon knows there's no substitute for the rush of endorphins from a really great workout, and Echelon will help you achieve your fitness goals, and you will enjoy doing it too. Their service is amazing. One Echelon membership gets you up to five family members, and they receive all the benefits. I personally love their huge variety of equipment. Their diverse array of programs is incredible. It keeps me on my toes. Echelon has connected bikes that give you an immersive spin class studio experience. They have smart rowers that take you down the best waterways in the world. And they have those reflect smart mirrors for personal training at the touch of a button. And there is just one app to connect them all. Echelon United provides access to all content throughout Echelon's products. They have thousands of on-demand classes available with 30-plus accredited world-class trainers, including guest and celebrity instructors. So work out with the Echelon community, inspire each other to climb the leaderboards. Echelon has been featured everywhere. Women's Health, Cosmo, Time, People. The Wall Street Journal says Echelon has cracked the code. And Yahoo Finance says Echelon is where fitness and technology unite at a price you can afford. So if you want to turn things around and get in the best shape of your life, do it. Check out echelonfit.com today. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. All right, I'm joined by Dana Goldberg for the good news, and I'm excited about today's good news. I am too. I think we're riding away from the podcast episode already, so we're just we're going to keep going. Mm, yeah, and if you have some good news, personal or political, or a correction or confession or just pod pets you want to send in, or if you have a dispute at home between you and someone, send it to us, and Amy Carrero will will gavel through it on on Friday's episode in Amy's court. Okay, um, let's jump in. First up, we have from another legit AG, pronouns she and her. This gets lost in national election coverage, but it's a great story. Nebraska is one of only two states that splits its electoral votes, but it rarely happens here. Maybe the only other time was 2008. This election, one indeed went to Biden and Harris, thanks to my vote. But much more of the credit goes to the Dem Party organizer and junior Stacey Abrams, precious McKesson, who was chosen to be said elector. I watched the formal casting of the electoral votes. In our beautiful, unique state capital in Lincoln, Nebraska, it was fucking awesome. When the electors were introduced individually, an otherwise quiet and bureaucratically stiff process, the room loudly erupted in cheers when Precious was announced. The official leading the proceedings even congratulated her. More cheers when she handed in both ballots, first for Joe and then Kamala. She was beaming with pride. It was so heartwarming. I wish I could find a video, but I only have some screenshots. Considering all the other shit shows going on, I have to commend Nebraska state officials for today's proceedings. No bullshit or shenanigans, just civility and even pride in honoring our special kind of process. And that's after our dumb attorney general embarrassed the state and besmirched the legal profession by co-signing that ridiculous, stupid lawsuit from Texas with the other Republican attorneys general. Fuck him double and all those other corrupt motherfuckers and may karma do its thing. (laughs) But three cheers for people like Precious. (laughs) Check out her appropriately blue and banging outfit in love my it. picks. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, and she uh she's so proud in this moment. Oh. Look at her. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love I it. I do too. This is an awesome story. Thank you for sending it in. All right. This next one is a correction. In fact, if you want me to take the next two, I'll happy to if this this one's a bit short. Yeah, yeah, do this one short, so go for the next two. You got it. This next one comes from Jenna pronoun she her. This is a correction. Your show makes 2020 suck less. <laughs> It is the lamest correction ever to say technically INFJ is the rarest personality type. Mm. 
LOL, or to say we can all be judgy together. <laughs> Thanks for being well-sourced and outspoken. We need more of you in this world. You're right. I just am an ENTJ and I don't care. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love that you're laughing really hard at your own uh, joke right now, which makes me very it's happy. A, it's like a fuck your feelings joke, but it's a fuck your F joke, right? Okay. <laughs> That's how that goes. <laughs> All right. We've got more good news. This comes from Anonymous, pronounced he and him. Hi, ladies. I have both a confession and good news. First, the confession. My partner and I have two wonderful sons, but we live in one of the reddest states in the country, and both of our families match that hue. My in-laws, though, recently moved to a rural area several hours away, and with COVID being what it is, we haven't seen them in person since March. Mostly okay with me. <laughs> About three months ago, my older son, who's nine, asked to paint his nails after watching my partner do the same. We're doing our best to raise our kids outside of traditional gender expectations, so of course the answer was yes. He chose orange and purple. So the problem came in when we had a Zoom call with my partner's parents and grandfather, and they both noticed my son's nail polish and later complained that only girls should have nail polish and that men don't wear nail polish. Of course, my nine-year-old was very hurt and put out by the comments. Well, I'm a 6'6". 280 pound, bald and bearded man, think from Paul offensive line, but um, <laughs> after a decade of too many drinks. I'm also petty and extremely not down with my in-law shit. So for the next, well, until I get tired of maintaining them, my in-laws are going to have a son-in-law with spectacularly painted nails. So far, they haven't said anything, though I've openly flaunted my rather flamboyant nails on both Facebook and on our family Zoom calls, and I've noticed some questioning looks. My partner so far thinks it's hilarious, but we'll see how long that also lasts. Uh, on the good news part, early in quarantine, my partner and I decided to open our house to new foster dog as the quarantine really hit a neighboring reservations rescue gra uh, group hard. Enter Goldie <laughs> Hawn. Oh my God, the name alone, I haven't even seen a picture. Enter Goldie Hawn, a gorgeous and sweet yellow lab pit bull mix, who immediately bonded with my older son. It was clear about three days after I drove the four hours each way to pick her up, but we finally made it official last week. We are, for the second mm. time, failed dog fosters. Thanks again for all the hard work you put into the podcast, and thanks for the sanity checks over the last few months especially. For the pet tax, I've included pictures of our newest family member, Goldie Hawn, with her stuffed squirrel and our 14-year-old beagle dachshund, Casey, for first foster, that's the first foster fail. Uh, peace with you this holiday season if you celebrate in the new year, whether you celebrate or not. I'm definitely celebrating the new year. Uh, we got to get the wow. fuck out of 2020. Hell yes. Oh, look at Goldie Hawn. Oh my <gasps> God. Oh, the baby Goldie Hawn. beagle, beagle. dachshund. And look at this. Oh look at the it's so beagle. great. It's like a short, long dachshund or a short, long beagle. I love it. Okay. Oh my goodness. I love it. Ah. Uh, Thank you. And that's wonderful. 66280 with flamboyantly painted nails. I approve. Um, next up from Yael. Pronouns she and her. Yael? I don't know if I'm saying that right. I apologize if I am. Yael. 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 After working for nine years for a horribly ungrateful customer, I realized that with my new pandemic lifestyle, I didn't have to take that customer shit anymore. <laughs> I gave two weeks notice nice. and quit. Yes, probably not the right time to give up paying customers, but nothing... Uh, that feels this good can be wrong. If you have the option to have faith in yourself, you owe it to yourself to go for it or just quit nasty customers. So I'm sharing my own correction here. I've been listening for a really long time. Kitchen table, long time. I'm blue, do, 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 long time. Since before you had They Might Be Giants writing the catchy theme song, you know, Daily Beans, Daily Beans. 
Uh, that's so great. Um, but that's not the correction. No one is saying Miss Mary. They're saying with swearing. I did not know that. I've been singing along for years with Miss Mary. This blew my mind. My dog is amazing. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. When I daily... Be- it's... Uh, news with swearing daily beans daily beans and a lot of people are like what are they saying what are they saying it's news with swearing not miss mary but that's amazing and i love that you've been singing it miss mary news miss mary daily beans daily beans i like when people mess up words to songs it and makes look me at happy this, look at this smiley. baby is it a boston oh my god it's adorable look at your baby oh god the smiles i do love an animal smile mm. makes me happy all right this next one is for anonymous pronouns she and her uh i've been listening to msw although i took a break from all the news for a chunk of time this year for my sanity on march 13th the preschool i taught at for years closed its doors with no indication of when it would reopen i was disappointed but that disappointment grew when i learned that i was actually ineligible for unemployment in my state of georgia Due to the fact that the church that housed my preschool is exempt from unemployment tax. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Sorry, that was my own interjection. I, along with my husband and three sons, moved into the old farmhouse on the farm my family has owned for several generations and took up learning to farm in order to meet basic needs. At first, I was less than thrilled as I spent my youth insisting I would never live on the family farm as an adult. Summer of 2020 ended up being one of the sweetest happiest times I can remember as I spent long days in my garden and evenings on the front porch with my husband watching and occasionally joining our kiddos as they ran tumbling barefoot through the grass. Oh my goodness. In September, I accepted a position working in an office, not nearly as much fun or rewarding as watching children's faces light up as they experience the joy of exploring their world, but it is great to have an income again. I quickly learned that my boss is extremely conservative, not surprising since I live in the second most conservative district in the United States. To my horror, as early voting started, my employer proudly displayed a tiny Doug Collins sign and a Trump sign larger than my minivan in the front window of our building, a.k.a. my office. Afraid of losing my job, but infuriated by the blatant support of everything awful, I began rebelliously binge listening to <laughs> Daily Beans in my earbuds while I work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the good news is that while old Don may have never conceded, my boss admitted defeat after our electors voted yesterday. Jesus, that took a long time. After our electors voted yesterday by removing the signs, allowing lovely sunlight to shine back into my office once again. Also, Georgia is blue. Hoping for similar resorts in the January's runoff. As a tax, I have included a pet tax picturing Gracie Lou Furbush, uh, the pup oh, who adopted... Oh. I know. The pup who adopted us by walking into our front door three years ago and refusing to leave. Okay, first of all, Gracie Lou Furbush is the best name. Okay, do you know where that comes from, Dana? It, it came into my head and then I and then I just, I had an idea and then now it's gone. Gracie Lou, why did it? Miss Congeniality. T- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's what it was. Gracie Lou Freebush, but this is Gracie Lou yes. Furbush. Oh, God, she was so funny. What's your favorite date? Um, <laughs> April 25th. April 25th. It's not too hot oh and it's not God. too cold. It's not too hot. All you need cold. is a light sweater. Oh, my God. Yeah. April 25th on, on social media, we always celebrate light jacket day. Um, mm, I love it. The perfect date. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, there's the face of terrorism. Yeah, I love that, and I love Sandra Bullock. I absolutely love Sandra Bullock. I do, too. It bothers me when people are like, I don't like Sandra Bullock. I'm like, what is wrong with you? She's the best 
Okay. I mean, I might be objectifying her as well, but I also like her movies. So <laughs> she's just adorable. And like, I want to put her in my pocket, but then she she's really an incredible is. actress. And she's a good human and she's got beautiful kids. Yeah. All right. Enough. This dog is adorable too. Gracie Lou Furbush. Yes. The face. <laughs> oh, so cute. All right. Thank you so much for sending in these stories. These are wonderful. Keep them coming. Keep them coming, please. You can send them in at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. That's where you can send us everything, anything you need to communicate with us. Um, even if it's just sending photos, we, we absolutely love them and appreciate them. Uh, anything else you want to add before we get out of here, Dana? No, I just want to wish everyone a really good rest of your week. Um, like you said, news is getting better. There's good stuff coming. So just try and stay positive and not get caught up with the uh, bullshit because there's plenty of bullshit out there. Mm. Yep. It will. It will continue. The pardons are going to start rolling in now that Barr's gone. So <sighs> gird your loins. And until tomorrow, uh, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and gird your loins. I've been AG. <laughs> and I've been DG. Them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>